Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture story. So good day, everybody. It's very exciting today to have Molly Ring join us. She currently has three jobs. I'm tired just thinking about it. <laughs> She's a principal at a company called Dialogic Solutions. She is also a senior philanthropy writer at Social Capital. And she's the strategic communications lead at Softland Partners. And so I'm very interested in talking to her because she's ha had a good background on inter international entrepreneurship. So welcome, Molly. Thank you, Wendy. It's great to be here with you. Thanks. So tell me, how do you manage these three jobs? <laughs> well, um, and I'd add a fourth, which is just during the pandemic, managing having my entire family in my house, um, which is another job in and of itself. But yeah, I think um, it's just kind of how I've always thrived is to have my hands in a lot of different things. And I think it probably just uh, the skill of being able to sort of quickly move from one total shit to put that away, move to the next thing. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of how I thrive. And fortunately, they all um, use a skill which I really enjoy, which is, is writing. So I pretty much, um, you know, I'm using the same skill set for each, but just sort of for a different audience. And that, that's really helpful. That is. So that, that's where the strategic communications and writing mm -hmm. is the continuous across all that. Right. Mm -hmm. All right, so Todd, let's, let's get into on international entrepreneurship and what you've done in that area, because I think that's going to be fascinating. Yeah, so um, I started that work, um, gosh, back in 2007 uh, with a inter-American development funded program to support uh, entrepreneurs in emerging economies um, throughout in this case, it was Central America and the Caribbean, and it was a, um, a global competition to sort of recognize and award funding to these entrepreneurs who they identified as fitting a really unique profile. Like they, um, the model was called COWF, which just as an acronym meant they understood their customers, they were investing in their workers, um, they were they understood they were profitable, right? They understood the role of good ownership, and they were also investing in future generations. So they weren't degrading the environment. They were investing in their local community. And the concept behind it was that these entrepreneurs, by investing in them, but also role modeling them, that this would help to sort of foster a culture of entrepreneurship and social innovation within communities that would really benefit from. From having, um, from having those role models showcased. Um, and so my role was to really help us launch these competitions across 13 countries um, in you know, a unified way because we were very much trying to um, you know, share this concept and really help people understand the goals. Um, but also obviously we had to build local trust and we had to get folks on board to say, yes, I understand this and I wanna be a part of it. Um, 
And so I started doing that and just felt really inspired by the thousands of entrepreneurs that we um, engaged with and just this idea that role modeling and showcasing really could have an impact both to young entrepreneurs, you know, new, uh, a new generation of folks that were wanting to play that role within, um, within their local economy, but also older entrepreneurs, folks who were, um, you know, wanting to be local role models themselves and also sort of adapt their business practices, maybe to take more of a, um, a social entrepreneurship um, angle in terms of that level of investment in the local community. So that's where I started. Um, and then uh, kind of continued on to working uh, to develop a network for those entrepreneurs that we uh, identified through that process. I started teaching some classes on social entrepreneurship um, and uh, social innovation. And along the way, I got in the fortune of meeting uh, Bill Kenny, who started Softland Partners. And that has been kind of a great extension of this work because it's really a consortium for scaling companies that are looking for trusted relationships. And I think that's been all along kind of the the uh, the theme that I've taken away from this work the most, which is the value of, of building trust across, you know, vast geographies and what that really, um, how that translates into good communication and, um, and just strong business models. So what kinds of businesses were you supporting when you were doing the, the whole, when you were screening and supporting and what were you looking for and what industries yeah, were they so, in? Oh, so any really, we were very open. It, and again, it kind of really came down to those four criteria. So, um, you know, obviously in something in an air region like the Caribbean, you have a very large hospitality industry. Um, you know, these were medium sized, uh, small and medium sized, but primarily medium sized, meaning these weren't necessarily like your mom and pop shop on the corner, but somewhere where they had, um, you know, a, uh, they had moved sort of to the next level in terms of uh, their scale. And so, so would you uh, look at it like revenues or number of employees or how would you judge? I know you said that they were profitable, but there's also a size element to it. Sure. Yeah. So they did have to um, meet the criteria of, I don't remember if it was more than five. I mean, they had to be right. So they were, it was revenue and number of employees, but honestly, fundamentally it was, did they meet the criteria of being at a level of business operation where they um, could ide clearly identify their, their, uh, you know, their buyer personas. Did they really understand their customers and were marketing to them? Were they making investments in their workers where, um, you know, they were offering some sort of benefits and training and long-term skill building? Um, it was really those criteria that we were looking for um, because, you know, the, the sort of whole theory behind this model was that these were the types of entrepreneurs that could really deliver long-term prosperity to their local economies, that there was something about meeting this level of, um, you know, meeting these uh, characteristics that, that really translated into um, that kind of long-term economic development that we were, that we were aiming to foster. I'm absolutely fascinated by entrepreneurship. I belong to entrepreneurs organization. I've mentored other people starting businesses. I have a walk later on and we call it our coaching walk that I get together with another business owner. And there's a certain culture in the United States of entrepreneurship. 
And you're talking mm -hmm. about doing it across 13 countries um, and, and scanning for this kind of, of uh, you know, business owner that's, that's achieved a certain thing. But when you look at culture, you've got the country culture, the business culture, you've got the individual culture. How does, what differences in entrepreneurship did you see across those 13 countries? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I think what was, um, you know, I think there's different obstacles um, that folks face in, in, in particularly emerging economies. I mean, I think the relationship with, with government and entities, um, access to, you know, investment, you know, there's just a lot, it's just a different range of, of challenges and obstacles. There's, um, you know, just a, a history of, of sort of who's, his, you know, been successful in business in their country and sort of, and whether this is a turning point in terms of um, opportunity for folks who maybe don't have that legacy um, in, in the local economy and, and folks who are trying to break in. And obviously that's true in the United States too, but I think these are, um, so I'd say that the obstacles are different, but I'd say that the characteristics in terms of the, um, you know, the qualities and the mindset, so much of that is the same. And I think that's what was probably the most exciting for me um, as I started to teach entrepreneurship and really get into sort of, I got to experience it first and interact with the people and then kind of layer in the theory and practice um, as I turned to teaching these models and yeah, I mean, I was just amazed by how so much of it, so much of what I was um, learning about and then teaching was just sort of truly embedded in the individuals that we were engaging with, that they understood, um, you know, the value of, of, of their idea and their level of investment in it, but also uh, the ability to recognize when something wasn't going right and, you know, making a change to then uh, better serve their market, that they truly understood their customers. And these were folks that were successful at it. Obviously, there's a whole other set of mindset characteristics that lead folks to be less successful. Um, but I felt really inspired by how a lot of the folks that were really rising to the top were we're, we're demonstrating a lot of those amazing characteristics that help us that, you know, enable entrepreneurs to be successful. And in particular, social entrepreneurs, right? Folks who are seeing a problem in their community that they desperately want to address and are applying a lot of these really valuable business practice mindsets to, to solve those, you know, to create solutions for those problems. Okay, um, so yeah. let's get into some of these stories here. So, yeah. you know, we've got, they were a lot of hospitality, industries. Mm -hmm. so I want to hear like mm -hmm. industries and countries and then bring it down to some of the entrepreneurs in particular of what um, you worked with them on, like what you were training them on and what that resulted in. So I just mm -hmm. threw a whole bunch of questions out at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the competition, unfortunately, within the scope of the competition, we were really identifying entrepreneurs and then sort of that um, that kind of ended at the at the recognition of their accomplishments. So um, I'd say within that, right, we had, um, you know, I remember from who rose to the top, we had um, an amazing, um, in Guyana, we had an amazing um, family-run furniture business that was, and actually they were the, the winners of our, um, they, they were in our uh, Caribbean competition because of the language differences, but they, 
you know, this was um, an amazing company that was taking, you know, local products. So like they have, you know, they were looking at uh, within the realm of forestry, right? Like they had these amazing um, trees and, and natural products and then they were turning them into furniture, but they were doing it in a way that they were delivering finished product, you know, like the, you know, the history of so many of these countries in terms of how their economic development occurred was that they were just exporting raw materials and their local economies were not benefiting at all um, from the finished product. And so we were, in this case, it was someone who was taking it from the raw material through the finished product to basically kind of rattan style, you know, outdoor furniture, really beautifully done. Um, so understood the full business model and the value, or sorry, the full, um, you know, creating the full supply chain within the company and how that sort of maintains their, um, keeps the profit local, but then also um, was making sure that he was using sustainable practices so that they were replanting, right? They weren't, because it was their environment, right? They weren't, they were mm. making sure that it was um, that everything that for every tree they, you know, pulled out, they were planting new and that you know, obviously that's a big, that's something that you wouldn't see from someone who was just exporting raw materials is that level of investment in keeping, um, you know, keeping the supply um, sustainable. So that's just one example I can think of. And they were really, really, um, you know, just super innovative and, and just really understood, but it was a family run business. You know, it wasn't something that is not, you know, Harvard Business School graduate. These are folks who just intuitively understand right what it takes to to thrive and i'm just trying to think i mean another another really fun one kind of on the flip side of that was a um a uh this was in jamaica um a woman who created a a male spa so it was a um, you know there the culture was that you know women went to hairdressers and and there was a certain culture around just sort of you know the where women go to to sort of be made to feel beautiful, but there really wasn't that for men. And she identified that there was a real need for a place that was male-centered um, where they could, you know, get all of those treatments and feel proud of it, you know, that it wasn't something they had, they didn't have to go into, quote unquote, a woman's face and get their hair and nails done and feel uncomfortable about it. And um, and it was called Totally Male Limited. And, and she's been incredibly successful um, in creating that space and expanding and and sort of helping to to kind of change the culture around where men can go to to experience beautification, you know. Oh so my gosh, that's fantastic! Really interesting range. Yeah. 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 Now you mentioned when you were starting to talk about Guyana um, that you said something about languages. So I'm always curious about that. How did your organization handle languages throughout the challenge? Because I'd imagine in 13 countries, you would have had English and Spanish. And yeah, so we had um, so we had English, Spanish, and French because we also worked in Haiti. Okay. Um, and so what we did, and this was really um, interesting, is we so we obviously we did use translation um, for our materials. Um, and then we also hired, so I was sort of in charge of making sure that the communications that were coming from sort of the home base about the competition and, and you know, our press and everything was, um, you know, that was sort of single sourced from me, but then we were using local uh, public relations companies in each of the countries to help us. Um, we had, we managed the translation, um, 
because we wanted to make sure that that was sort of uniform across, but that, and, and we were maintaining obviously a certain level of quality there um, in messaging, but we, but we really relied on local PR to help us get that messaging out um, because we didn't pretend to know the local networks of, you know, and it, it's different in every country, right? Radio, wow. something that was kind of something that we wouldn't necessarily think to do here, you know, in certain countries is very big still. And, and at least it was, you know, now this is already a little bit ago, but, um, you know, which, which web uh, news sites, which, um, you know, even television and, and local news agencies. So we did rely on local partnerships for sure. Um, but the kind of centralized communication and translation came from us. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, that was a, a good decision because I was worried you were going to say that you wrote all the communications and then all the local places did the translation. Oh, but no. You did, you, yeah, you said, oh, no. Okay. And so you, you kept the message intact to make mm -hmm. sure that it was consistent, appropriate, and right. But then you were smart when bringing in the local resources to figure out. So that's really interesting. Yeah. And did you find differences in the kinds of companies or people reactions or the culture in each of the countries? Yeah, so that was really interesting. I'd say um, at the level that the competition was operating, not quite yet. Later, after the competition, I helped to co-found a firm called Kinesis, which basically the idea behind that was to take um, that was when I talked about sort of building a network for these entrepreneurs. We found that when we brought these folks together um, for the final competition, there was an incredible amount of synergy and they were so excited to be in each other's presence to meet fellow entrepreneurs across their region. Um, and so we decided to then develop a network for them. And that's where we kind of looked at helping to bring in, you know, kind of training and, and, and uh, connection building for those entrepreneurs. Um, and that's where I'd say we noticed some differences, not even necessarily between countries, but where, um, where it became more difficult, I think, to, to build a level of trust when we weren't on the ground. Um, and so I think in every country, but in particular, a, I think a disconnect between or a difficulty rather between operating say from the US and in a emerging economy in the Caribbean or in Central America, I'll take Haiti for example, where we did a lot of our work, is that you really needed an on the ground person to be, uh, to be the face of the organization and to build those relationships. Um, and that like it wasn't gonna work to be remote anymore once we got to a certain level of, of relationship building. Um, and that's not something we saw initially at the level that we were operating for the competition, but then when we were really trying to build, um, relationships and provide that we're more of a high touch consulting service to these entrepreneurs and, and help them connect with other like-minded, um, like-minded individuals, it required more. Um, and so I'd say that was kind of the big difference more between us and, um, these economies rather than um, in and amongst them. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So did you ever live down there? No, not for this. These were all um, more short. I mean, I didn't sort of, the role didn't require it, but I would have, I did get to visit and I certainly um, would have loved the opportunity to spend more time. Um, but 
my Spanish is not great. My French is mildly better. Um, that's one thing somehow I've managed to do all the strategic communications work across countries and, and never master a language. But fortunately, there are folks out there like you that can help with making sure that communications are done well in other languages. That is the biggest point that I want people to get, is that you don't have to speak all those other languages to do business internationally. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, you just made that so well. Yeah, so what was your first exposure to international anything? Um, I was really fortunate as a kid. So I grew up in New York City, um, and I just, I was, I grew up in a family that loved to travel. Um, and so I um, got to travel quite early. I, when I was um, in early high school, like after ninth grade or something, I spent an entire summer in China, um, mm -hmm. which at that time uh, was quite different from it, the way it is today. I mean, I remember going to Shanghai and there were just literally open fields around the city. I mean, it was just like, when I look at pictures and I haven't been back since, um, but it was a very different place and traveled to communities where Americans were not allowed. And because of the relationship with the group I was with, we were going into these small communities and, and you know, this was just so new. And, and I think it just, it kind of immediately for me, it was like, I want to continue to do this level of travel and, and you know, and learn. I mean, I just, once you do it, I think you, people talk about getting a bug, but I just think, you know, the bug to want to travel. I mean, and it's just, it's happened for me early. And I, um, and I, I just think those experiences totally changed sort of my worldview, but also my, um, my interests professionally. That's so, it's so fantastic to hear. There's usually something, and I didn't realize this before I started doing the podcast, is there's something early on that trigger people to mm -hmm. kind of take away that fear of other languages and cultures. Mm -hmm. So speaking of fears, you, you know, traveling is one thing, living in a tire, well, maybe, no, maybe this is where you conquered it, but did you have any fears like going to live in China or when you started the job where you were doing the international entrepreneurship? No, I, I mean, no, I think I'm, maybe that's something about doing it early as a kid is that you, kids don't feel fear in that way that adults do. And so I, I wonder, I hadn't thought about it from the perspective of fear, but I do kind of think that I also did a, I did a, like I lived for six months in West Africa um, when I was in college later. And, and, you know, when I think back on some of the travel I did completely on my own, you know, just on buses around, you know, it's just like, would I do it now, you know, at 41? I don't know. I don't think so. And I have kids. So I'm like, you know, how do, would they do it? Would I let them do it? If you start early and you, and fear is just not, it's no, I want to get there. I need to get there. I need to see yeah. this. I need to do this. And so once you, if it, that becomes sort of part of your mentality, I don't know that fear, you know, it, any other fears now I would have would be related to like, you know, stupid adult fears like you know, <laughs> health insurance and you know it's like but not not in terms of the cross-cultural piece not at all yeah yeah no I think it's so true and there is something to becoming a parent and then all of a sudden thinking oh yeah I don't want to put my kids in that risk or boy I don't know if I'd want them doing that because I I can relate completely to what you're saying it's just having mm -hmm. no fear I want to see I want to experience I want to do and 
and mm-hmm. yeah, it's such a blessing mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, let's go back to talking about the, um, the international entrepreneurship. When, when the pro when the program launched, did, did the people have experience? Like where did that idea come from? Yeah. So it's actually, um, it came from a bunch of Harvard economists. Um, it's a, it came out of, um, so it was a sort of, there were, there had been books written about this. There was a firm that had wanted to do this and they had done a competition in Africa already, um, that, uh, uh, preceded my, my starting with the, with the company. And so, um, this was, you know, I, I think it opened my eyes to the sort of an entire theory of economic development that was really focused on entrepreneurship and supporting entrepreneurs. Um, it was something that prior to that I hadn't been, I had, you know, studied political science in college. I had done public administration. Like I understood economic development, but, um, an international economic development, but I hadn't made that connection between this type of sort of taking the angle of supporting individual entrepreneurs and an entrepreneurial spirit mindset and culture to, to spur that type of economic development. I think, I don't know, I think now it's also just so much more commonplace. Like this was, you know, even just the, just in the last 15 years, right? Like this whole entrepreneurship and and lean innovation, all that stuff just, you know, became so much more commonplace that now it seems more obvious that that would be an approach, but it just kind of wasn't then, mm-hmm. um, or it wasn't mainstream the way it is now. So, yeah, so I think I was tapping into something that was quite pre-existing, but um, it's just become, you know, much more um, commonplace now. Is the organization still around? That um, that OTF group, which was the consulting firm that um, was doing this work previously, has is not. That group has gone off and done other things. Um, Kinesis uh, was the firm that my colleague and I started sort of after that um, to support the local entrepreneurs. And then since then, we've both moved on. I now have Dialogic Solutions and she works elsewhere as well, but we still hold on to it. And like, you know, the connections and the relationship thinking one day, maybe we'll, we'll go back to that. Cause it was so fun. You know, I think it's just, it's hard to give things up, but. Right. Right. Yeah. So tell me more about what you're doing at Dialogic Solutions now. Yeah. So um, I think this really comes from a, that passion to, to support social impact um, and social entrepreneurship and, and the, um, you know, we pretty much uh, are looking at support sort of from three angles. So there's uh, strategic communication, um, and that might be in seeking investment or just, um, you know, from a everything from like a pitch deck to a sales sheet or something like that to um, to sort of more public facing like uh, websites, you know, website text and um, that type of piece, public more public facing. Um, and then there's program evaluation support. So really measuring impact. Um, and that could be anything from doing uh, survey design and supporting with um, evaluating particular programs to, um, to teaching program evaluation to other service providers. Um, and then there's clean energy consulting because uh, fundamentally one of our big goals is, is supporting um, clean energy and the green, you know, transition to a green economy. And so we're 
uh, providing uh, mostly obviously for, for businesses, not necessarily for individuals, although individuals come to us as well, for support in helping to make that transition, um, whether from just like understanding the pricing, understanding the, the, the models that are out there, and just kind of developing a roadmap for where to begin. Because um, that move and that, you know, that's just, it's gaining so much speed and particularly here in the Pacific Northwest, but everywhere it for sure is. So. Oh, it definitely is. Are you on um, clubhouse at all yet? No, I haven't. I mean, I've, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, I've been on it uh, quite a bit. I run a room every Friday morning at nine o'clock East coast time on global business and Mm -hmm. we rotate topics. And last week we did it on um, sustainable packaging um, and there are a lot of rooms about sustainability and green energy and, you know, non-impact environmental living. I mean, it really seems to have attracted that crowd in. And so I've been learning fascinating stuff because I'm, I'm interested in it. So if I see a room on that, I'll go in. Yeah. I mean, I think the amazing connection that I see between from a strategic communication side is, right, like there's a there's sort of two sides to it. There's the businesses that want to do right, you know, that they, they, they feel that for themselves and they also may see the, the, um, uh, the profitability behind it long-term to being sustainable. But then there's a whole piece of letting their customers know about it. And some are right. more motivated by, the, um, by being able to let their customers know first what they're doing and sort of backfilling um, how they can make that happen in small ways. And then there are others mm. who are like, no, I want to do this right and then you know we're already doing well this is just going to help us do better because we know that our customers care about this um you know we're not necessarily trying to find new customers but we're trying to let our customers know that we're aligned with their values even more than we you know they may have thought so it's it is really interesting to watch as the trend builds how companies are are responding that's fascinating i'd love to see an analysis of the companies that do it for the PR and they need to do it versus the ones that are driven by it and then go, Oh yeah, we should probably communicate that out. Like what's the difference in background or age or upbringing or, you know, who, who gets called into that? I think, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. So mistakes, you've seen a lot of international expansion you've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs you were working across languages when you were running the contest and then running and then you opened kinesis is that how you say it yes okay um you mentioned one mistake about you know just needing feet on the ground to really build those Mm -hmm. relationships and that's Mm -hmm. understandable what other types of mistakes did you see or could you have anticipated that our listeners could avoid? Yeah. Um, I think um, for us, it was, and this was kind of amazing because (laughs) when you think about it, because in many ways we were teaching, um, you know, we were teaching lean startup, we were teaching uh, MVP and testing, and we were teaching all of this. That's kind of what we were, um, about, but I'd say that we weren't doing enough testing of our own. Um, and, you know, I, and I think that, you know, maybe shouldn't come as a surprise that we, that we weren't sort of um, adopting our own practice, you know, the, the sort of mantras that we were espousing. But I think 
it's so important to do that level of testing and to take the time to test and then learn and then retest and just absolutely understand your market and your customer base and what it is that they care about. Um, and I think we were, we got really wed to some ideas about what this network needed based on inspiration that we had. But I think as we tried to go deeper into some of these markets, we were finding that, um, that we maybe weren't as, you know, that, that the, the demand maybe wasn't there for everything that we thought we could deliver. Um, and we needed to do more testing, um, more market testing to find out, you know, what, what were these customers' pain points? What did they, what did these entrepreneurs truly need? And I think um, as a recommendation, I would say absolutely test building, uh, test, testing um, is just so important for when scaling into a new, a new market. So what was your inspiration? And then what was the entrepreneur's pain points? Like, what did you miss there? Yeah, so I think um, our inspiration was just this desire to connect. Um, that we, that we, that it was seeing these entrepreneurs come together from countries that they had never known anyone in, you know, that they, and seeing the way that they immediately saw huge, tremendous value in knowing one another. Mm -hmm. So we just felt really inspired by watching that happen. And then we're like, okay, we need to create a network for these individuals. We need to, um, we need to, you know, add value to it with educational resources. And, and I think what we learned was that a lot of them, um, the idea of network building was sort of different. You know, they really appreciated the experience that they had, but I think for the capacity that we were able to deliver, they were very used to networking locally and they were part, they were a part of a trusted network locally and building that cross, um, that international though regional um, type of network where they could communicate with one another was a lot harder than we thought. Um, and then I think too, we were trying, we were kind of coming in with a set of ideas that we thought about things that we thought they would, you know, uh, benefit from learning about, particularly kind of lean innovation type practices. And in fact, many of them were like, I need money. I need investment, you know? And I think it was like, right, that's what you need. But like these, all these things are great too. You know, this is how you get there. And this is how, and I think there was a learning curve that, you know, there was a translation issue, not, you know, language translation, but just sort of concept that like, we weren't necessarily doing the best job of educating them about how all of this leads to investment um, and how there's, and, but also we weren't necessarily listening hard enough to them saying, I'm, you know, I want to engage, but I also need connections to, to investors to help me grow. Um, so, you know, and I think all that's really common. I think you just have to mm -hmm. experience it um, to truly understand sort of what it means to, to learn and then have to go back and adjust, you know, before you can go forward. Right. No, I think that's absolutely fascinating. And it's, it, it is something that marketers run into all the time. But that's, you know, you did the first one and you learned and then doing another one. But then that's the balance of an entrepreneur is how much money do you have and how much are you going to invest in it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's. Um, 
that's really, really fascinating. Um, so you, your, your specialty is communications, and you've worked across um, multiple countries, multiple languages, multiple industries. Um, give us some suggestions for clear communications, and then particularly, how do you prepare those communications if you know they're going to be translated? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. I think I'm, um, I'm really committed from a communication standpoint to, um, to simplicity and to um, moving away from sort of rhetoric and language that just sort of isn't evergreen, I'd say. You know, I think there are ways of describing things that just don't, um, they just don't go out of style, right? They were just clear, concise, and they um, absolutely express what it is that you are um, just seeking to express, right? What, whether it's your, your mission and vision or, um, you know, particular goals that you have, your, your theory of change for a new community, all those things, right? I think when people start to use terms that are very much of the moment, um, and feel very familiar in terms of like, you know, right now there's just some words that I'm hating because I'm seeing them all over the place, right? Like if one more person says pivot, I'm just going to like lose my mind or, you know, <laughs> before that it was disruption. And as someone who's like taught entrepreneurship, I'm like, no, you're not using it correctly. Like that's a hundred percent wrong, but um, it, you know, sure. It technically means to disrupt, but that's not what it means in this context. And so when you know, when you, I think I really try and stay away from those types of words and ways of describing things because they don't last forever, right? They're very much of a particular moment and people have all sorts of other connections to them in their daily life where they're, and I think you want your communications to truly be about you and not about people's connections to other things that they may come across. And so I'd say that my style, and I think this relates to translation, right? Because those things also translate well. Um, when you're being really clear and concise and not trying to nuance the words like like disruption into another language um, it just doesn't it just doesn't work and um, and then I think the other piece is really finding a translation partner that you know at the end of the day understands the message behind what it is that you're you know you're meaning and so I I, I can't say enough, you know, what can go wrong? And I'm sure you have a million stories about this, you know, people who come to you after they've had a really bad experience with someone who, you know, it's just, it's amazing how bad the translation was. But at the end of the day, it was about them not understanding, you know, what the what their client, meaning, you know, the, the person I'm writing for, right, what it is that they really wanted to convey. Um, you know, and so I think that's just un that level of, of, of understanding is really key, but it also comes down to just not using language that, you know, that just doesn't withstand time. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. We, 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 you know, kind of affectionately call it writing it in global English. So it's set for translation. If you use those colloquialisms and humor and creative stuff, it doesn't translate well and you end up with a mess. So it's mm -hmm. really interesting to hear your perspective on somebody who's writing marketing communications that just be clear. Because so often I think people, you know, have this image that marketing should be so creative. So after you did the, um, you had to hire the translation 
provider to, to give you the translations for going into the contest, right? How yeah. did you pick a vendor? Um, that's a good question. I think we, we very much went through personal contacts that people had. Um, and so, uh, you know, we were recommended some people who I think folks who made the recommendation felt confident that they understood um, they had a little bit of background in, in economic development. They just understood what we were trying to achieve. Um, and so I can't say now exactly like what, you know, source or, but I, I do remember that they were through referrals, um, which I think is, is, you know, also just a kind of a key part of what I've learned through doing um, this work all along is just the importance of those, of those personal referrals to help ensure that you're getting, um, you know, a better, just a higher quality of service or something more in line with what you're, with what you want. And how did you check quality? Um, so that's a good question. Well, I, cause I have to think back, but I, I mean, we did have native speakers, um, that we could refer, that we could double check everything with. So we felt confident that the quality of the, um, Spanish was good, but we also had, you know, local PR agencies that could, that were reading everything that we were putting out there. And so we had people on the ground who could say, if someone said, you know, maybe in another country in this region that, you know, resonates here, we recommend adding one more thing or, you know, it, whatever it may be. Or I think we had that sort of final, um, you know, that, uh, I can't think of the right word, but they, you know, someone to finally sort of be that um, gatekeeper, I should say, to, to make sure that what we were putting out truly spoke to the to the local community, but I think on our end we made sure that we felt very confident about the quality of the of the translation and that it truly reflected the message that we were, you know, aiming to convey. Yeah, that's a really interesting one that we've run into a few times where you have you do the translation and then a creative firm will come back and say, well, no, this would be more culturally appropriate. And, you know, so we love it when clients bring it back to us so we can discuss it through and say, which way do you want to go? Because in regulated industries, they tend to go with us because we carry a liability insurance policy, mm. whereas a creative agency won't, but they might have mm. the ability to do a little bit more free reign that might be more catchy in the local market. So that's, mm -hmm. it really is worth taking the time to, to look at it and works through those, those nuances. Definitely. And I think, I mean, I know that for myself, I can always tell if something is, since I'm being marketed too, right? Like that someone hasn't taken that step because there's just something, I mean, we can just, every reader, right? You see, read something and you're like, something is just off about this. It's just not written for me. And I think yeah. we all can do that no matter what our level of experience is, whether we want what's being marketed to us or not, it doesn't matter. We, there's something intuitive where we just know that this is not, if something's been translated, you know, in a way that is just not, you know, written for, for, right. for me and where I am and, and, and what I'm interested in. So I think it, it's so important. Right. And it's the same as if we read something that was written by somebody who grew up speaking English in London. It's just mm -hmm. going to sound off mm -hmm. and different, but it's completely yeah. right for that mm -hmm. audience. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, soft land partners earlier. I wanted to circle back to that. Bill Kenny was on the uh, podcast earlier, um, so there's an episode on that. But um, tell us a little bit more about soft land partners and what you see the 
awesomeness is about that organization. Yeah, so Softman Partners is basically, it's a consortium of service providers and trade and investment organizations um, that support companies scaling internationally. So that's sort of the, that's the focus. And, and the way that we, the way that it's structured is that we have these um, monthly meetups. We currently have nine in 19, so 19 Ooh. cities around the world have monthly meetups. Um, and that's really for these service providers and international trade and investment folks. And that's a chance to exchange ideas, talk about topics, really build trust with one another um, so that there becomes a um, kind of a social fabric between them where they can start to, we can refer to one another. Um, and, you know, I've talked to kind of about the value of those, of those uh, actual, you know, handed you know being able to hand someone a referral and say i trust this person um you know versus you know just sort of scanning a network in a market that you know nothing about and looking for a particular service provider really understanding the value of of those um you know those warm connections um and then there's a marketplace so of the folks who are members of the consortium there's an opportunity for scaling companies to then come to the website and actually look for partners that they might need to help them soft land in a new market. Um, so there's kind of the external facing piece that actually allows us to provide services to these companies. And then there's the sort of trust building network piece that we build through the meetups, um, which is an opportunity for this community to really strengthen um, at a regional level. So looking at it from, you know, what is the San Francisco uh, Southland community doing? What is LA? What is Sao Paulo? Um, we have meetups in Nairobi, London. I mean, it's we're, we're growing at a rate that's just amazing because the more people find out, oh, I do this work and I would love to help um, be a part of a network and also foster one is, um, we've really found kind of a sweet spot there. So that's, the work's been really exciting. Um, we launched right at the beginning of the pandemic, so our first meetups were supposed to be in person um, in New York and Boston, and quickly we moved to to uh, virtual. And actually, I think it's it's been a huge benefit because we've been able to grow much faster than I think we ever could have um, had we been trying to do this all in person. Yeah, well, I got to tell you, I love the virtual because I moderate the the Boston chapter, mm -hmm. which is on the last Monday of every month at four o'clock East Coast time. But we we have people that come in from all over the place. Mm -hmm. So it starts feeding these international connections, which is so nice about, you know, doing virtual, particularly if you're doing international business because you get to know more people. Yeah, yeah, so it's been great getting to know you through that. Now I'd like to switch to your recommendations. You've done international work. You're a specialist in communications. Um, you know, what advice would you have for people that are thinking about or have um, started doing international business of how they can be successful? Yeah. Um, I'd say a couple things. I mean, I think, and it probably all falls under this umbrella of just sort of slowing down. <laughs> I mean, I think that because I think, um, you know, finding the right partners, building trust, communicating effectively, all those things just require, um, they require a particular cadence. And I, I think that there's a real, you know, obviously people see opportunity and they want to move quickly. Um, but I think there's just so much value in doing things well and thoughtfully and from a place of 
of trusted partnership with those who are helping you along the way. And I think everyone needs help um, doing it, assuming that you can do this all on your own is, I just think honestly a little naive, just given the scale of what I'm sure, you know, everyone doing this work obviously hopes to achieve. And so I think um, making sure you're taking some time to build those trusted relationships um, to help you with people who truly understand, you know, each segment of what it is that you're trying to achieve, whether it's marketing or, you know, legal or site selection or human resources, whatever it is, right? Like you need someone that you trust to help you do that. And you can't necessarily find that person on just by just scanning sort of a website with no, um, you know, just no background, right? Like I just think there's, there's a real value in that. Um, and, and then communicating effectively, um, you know, obviously that's a big part of what I do, but I think breaking it down to simple strategic communication that, um, again, working with, you know, a company like, like Rapport International that's making sure that you're, that you're doing that well, right? Like that you're not just sort of rushing through it to get it out there, but that you truly know your customer base and you're, um, and you're speaking directly to them. I just think that's so important. So yeah, I would just say um, slowing down and building the right types of partnerships um, is probably the piece of advice that I'd say has gotten, that's been sort of most valuable to me along the way. That is fantastic advice. I think that's come up in various different, uh, you know, interviews before and conversations, but I've never heard somebody really saying, slow it down, you know, and I, I think that's a really, really important point. All right, so now we're going to switch a little bit to personal stuff. I always ask, what's your favorite foreign word? Um. <laughs> It probably it changes a lot. I'd say honestly, I think lately I've been watching. You know, we're all at home watching things, right? Everyone's right, yeah. what are you watching on Netflix? What are you watching? <laughs> and I have to say, I watch a lot of uh, my favorite sort of thing to watch when no one else is is around to watch with me are like British reality type shows. And lately, I've been obsessed with the word chuffed. You know what? Chuffed. Like it's a it's a British colloquialism that means like pleased, like quite pleased. And you hear people say like, oh, I'm, I'm quite chuffed that, you know, this is, and I'm just, I'm like, and it's, it's, people say it all the time. And I'm like, how did I not know about this word chuffed? It's not something that I've ever heard someone in the U.S. say. And I just, I just love it. It's my, it's my recent kind of a word that I'm just obsessed with. I love it. I've never heard that before. No, I have been quite, to London. I've quite yep. I'm quite chuffed to learn this word. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a really informal word. So I don't know. Depending on your circles in London, I don't know. You may not have heard it, but it's all over British reality TV. So if you're oh my gosh! <laughs> all right, what's the best British reality TV show now? Oh, gonna, I don't know. Yeah. I I tend to. We recently bought a home, so I'm watching all sorts of design. You know, home design <sighs> stuff. Great British baking show, all that kind of stuff. Those are like my my shows when when everyone else goes to bed and no one wants to watch. <laughs> <laughs> That's I watch movies with subtitles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how about your favorite vacation? Oh, right now it feels like every vacation I've ever taken. <laughs> no one's gone anywhere. Um, yeah, I've, I've, again, really been fortunate to have visited a lot of amazing places. I think the place that I'm looking forward to going back to soonest is probably Argentina. Um, yeah. I just, 
absolutely love Buenos Aires and so many places that I that we've visited sort of um, throughout the country. And um, now I, with an eight and five year old that I desperately want to be great travelers, I keep thinking of all the places I visited that I want to show them. And um, Argentina really ranked high on that list of somewhere I'd like to go back to. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I just love talking to you because my kids are now 17 and almost 20. And I did the same thing starting from about that age, maybe a little younger, but it would have been a year ago when you could have traveled. Mm -hmm. I took them to Canada first and then Mexico, and then we expanded mm -hmm. out to a bunch of different places. And now they got the travel bug and they love mm -hmm. all the cultural mm -hmm. differences. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And then a last question for you before how to reach you is what, um, was your most rewarding cross-cultural experience you've had? Um, I think that probably getting to live in Ghana for six months had the biggest impact on me. I think, and obviously this is something that um, you only get to do at a certain point in your life. Many of us who wear it's not just all about a job or all about, but it's just part of a college experience. And I I just remember really feeling like by the time I left, there was a, just a different level of, of comfort and, um, and yeah, I just, I, I just loved figuring out all of the things that one needs to know in terms of how to say something, you know, what expression you would use in a particular context, what the best way to get from point A to point B was in Accra, um, you know, what, um, you know, what types of foods were being served in different places. You know, I just think like there's something with spending time in a place where you really. So what was a moment? Was there a, an embarrassing time or a special food or a heartwarming time in Ghana? Um, yeah. Oh, gosh. So many. I think um, it was probably getting to uh, it was probably I got to live with a family for a, a, a you know a couple months um, in Cape Coast, which is about two hours from Accra, and then I went off and did research and, and did a bunch of other stuff. And then it was probably coming back to their home after having been away and feeling some sense of homecoming um, in a place that you know when I first arrived felt massively different and just you know um, just super foreign. And then to to be able to leave and come back and realize that you were finding familiarity the way that you do when you return home to your, you know, your permanent home, that it's, that there's something very comforting about that. And I, I do remember that feeling of going away for months and then returning back and saying like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, I've, I've built something here. Um, That's, so I guess that was that is completely heartwarming. That is just so <laughs> special to land at such a different culture from growing up in, in New York and developing mm -hmm. that relationship where you get that, that warm, welcoming feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. I'm, some of our listeners may want to reach out to you, particularly if they're trying to do any communications for, for global um, mm -hmm. opportunities. Where can people yeah. find you? So um, probably the best way, because we all started, I have three, I wear three different hats all the time, but probably the best way is um, molly at dialogicsolutions.net. Um, so, and then you can look us up at dialogicsolutions.net um, and there's our contact information there as well. Do you want to spell um, that? 
Sure, it's B I A L O G I C S and Solutions, uh, S O L U T I O N S dot net. Perfect. Okay. So Molly at Dialogic Solutions or just go to www.dialogicsolutions.com to learn dot more. Net. To reach Sorry, dot oh, dot net. Yeah. Net. Yeah. I'm glad I repeated it. Okay. Dialogicsolutions.net. <laughs> yeah. Or you can also find her at Softland Partners because um, that's where we hang out. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on. Yeah, this is really fun, Wendy. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And for listeners, I hope you learned something. I mean, this was fascinating to me to hear from a communications expert about how she she writes to make sure that it's clear and can be translated. Um, so I hope you learned something, too. Uh, and I did mention Softland Partners. You can go there and uh, drop in on one of the meetings there. Um, reach out to either of us if you want to know more about that. And then if you are on Clubhouse, um, look for the Global Business Room. That's every Friday morning at 9 o'clock East Coast time when we rotate topics through. And the other thing is my book is coming out. Look for that. You can order it on Amazon. It's uh, pre-early, you know, pre-order right now when we're recording this, but you can get it now. It's um, called The Language of Global Marketing, and it gives, uh, it's uh, translating your domestic strategies into international sales so it takes you through how to do all this stuff this wonderful stuff that i've learned from guests so i hope you have a wonderful day wherever you are um, listening to this and we'll talk to you next time that's a wrap for this session a big thanks to you for listening to the global marketing show hope you had just as much fun as i did New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.